Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast from the Financial Times. I'm Amy Keene. On the show this week, Lex writer Sujit Indap talks to media banker, Columbia Business School professor, and author Jonathan Nee about the evolution of modern investment banking, media moguls, and finding a way to be influential. Here it is. So before we get to discussing your books, let's first talk about like why, why do you write? You're very different in that you actually have strong opinions you want to share. There's plenty of bankers who will talk on background or off the record, but what's inspired you to actually share your experiences with the world in a very uh, straightforward way? Well, in general, I write to be influential. That is, there's something that I think can be better in the world that I think if I say something in particular that I've thought a lot about, I might be able to move the needle a little bit. I'm not, I'm uh, humble about just how much change you can make, but it's the same reason I teach, which is the belief that hopefully the people that you're teaching will get something out of it and uh, make themselves or make the world a teeny bit better than it was your first book, uh, The Accidental Investment Bankers, how you, how you first made a mark, uh, tells the story of how you ended up in the mid-90s at Goldman Sachs. So you had gone to Yale Law School, Stanford Business School, had done a fellowship post-college in, in Ireland, I believe. And then you became a lobbyist at United Airlines, or you were in the lobbying group at UAL. What was that like? What did, how did you end up there? So uh, actually, it goes back to <laughs> the answer to your other question, which is, you know, the, the idea of influencing policy in a positive direction is something that I've always thought was interesting. That is, having access to and the ability to influence important decision makers sounded like a, a cool thing to do. And when I graduated law and business school, that's what I was thinking about. But I was a little mercenary in that I didn't want to work at a, a nonprofit and make no money mm -hmm. given the size of my debts. So I found a law firm in Washington that was housing a bunch of ex-Carter administration people led by a fellow named Stuart Eisenstadt that did what we thought of as quite high-end policy work, what others may have described as lobbying. And I moved to uh, United Airlines where I actually ran international affairs, really because my girlfriend moved to Chicago and that seemed like a good job at the time. That's how I did it. And the reason I got out of it was because I was really the advisor bag carrier to the CEO of United. And we sold the airline to the dictatorship of the proletariat. And when you are the king's bag carrier, it is time to move on. The unions bought control of the company, not all of the economics, unfortunately, for those left with some economics, but no control. Uh, as their uh, subsequent share price and story tells. But, you know, I could have stayed as running international affairs, but frankly, the part of the job that was fun was traveling around with the CEO and that sort of thing. And I had a friend who was working at Goldman in London doing media investment banking for an interesting and very talented character named John Thornton. And this friend of mine said, hey, why don't you come do this? And... I didn't have a lot of other options, and I like media, but only in the sense that, uh, you know, I went to the movies a lot, and media's cool, and so one thing led to another, and the next thing I knew, I was a media investment banker at Goldman Sachs in London. And so you joined Goldman in London in the mid-90s, and we're on the cusp of a lot of important things that are going to happen, both kind of in the broader economy, the tech boom, and then a series of kind of secular shifts in, in on Wall Street and in investment banking. Yeah. And your book uses your career as, as a way to describe those shifts that were happening. And actually, when I got to writing the book, I looked at a lot of the history before I got there because, frankly, being at private Goldman Sachs in the mid-'90s 
you know, it wasn't a very cynical place. I mean, it was a private partnership that had very high standards and, frankly, pretty extraordinary values and had incredibly consistent leadership over a long period of time. And so when things started to go slightly haywire in the industry, you know, I, I didn't really have a sense myself of the context of the place that I had walked into and how very different the world started to become in the late 90s as the, uh, as the tech boom happened. Maybe we can talk about the, the emergence of the, the financial supermarket, the creation of Citigroup uh, and the Universal Bank and the financial supermarket that suddenly became the, the hot model at that time. Look, I, I think the story, the big story of what it was and what it became is a story that you see played out in lots of industries. It's just when you see them in a particular industry, it's just much more striking. And that is the shift from a relationship culture to a transactional culture. Sidney Weinberg uh, started running Goldman Sachs, I want to say, in the late 20s. Is that right? I believe he was a chimney sweep at one point. And he ran Goldman until the 60s. I think he died in the late 60s. And he was a remarkable person, but he was reflective of an industry where the idea of conflicts of interest were such that these companies saw their role as protecting the public and supporting the integrity of financial markets because they owned these businesses and they were going to hand them down to their children. So it was not unusual for a firm when it was sponsoring a company in the market. So it wasn't, this is my client on this deal. You make a very important decision and you go through something called a commitments committee and you decide, do you want to sponsor this company? And that is and not the partner's just, capital is at stake, to be clear. Absolutely. The partner's capital is at stake and the reputation is at stake. I mean, this is a franchise that the partners own. Um, and the only way you get liquidity is by selling it back to the company when you retire and leave or pass it down to your progeny who probably are working at the company. It's a very different perspective. I worked in the mid-90s on clients who had literally been passed down from Sidney Weinberg to his son, John Weinberg, to another partner who may or may not have been a Weinberg, but was certainly a longtime partner. Mm -hmm. And deciding to sponsor a company really was for literally generations. And that perspective is what changed over time. And once you start talking about a financial supermarket, that's a whole different ball of wax. The things that came into the financial supermarket were all little things that changed incrementally over time. Mm -hmm. I would say the three most important things were, one, believe it or not, mergers and acquisitions which is what everybody thinks of when they think about investment bankers. They think of Gordon Gecko, even though he wasn't doing mergers and acquisitions. He was doing trading. But mergers and acquisitions is sort of these tough guys who are, you know, doing deals. That wasn't even a business until the 70s. You might advise somebody on a merger. You might do it for free for a long-time client who your primary role was to sponsor them in the markets, help them raise money, help them think through strategic issues, and doing a merger and acquisition deal was really an ancillary product to... But once mergers and acquisitions became its own profit center, its own P&L, its own business, without clients, and when I say without clients, I mean, well, at the end of the day, the best business to have is selling things, not buying things, because right. when you sell things you know it's going to get sold and you're going to get paid. If you're trying to buy things, well, you're one of many people who are trying to buy it. And if it doesn't get sold to you, you just spent a lot of time and didn't make a lot of money. Right. The sell side is always better than the buy side. So when you're selling, by definition, once it's sold, they're not your client anymore. That is a transactional business uh, by its nature. And it is a very profitable business. And so as that part of the business started to become more and more central, I think that had a subtle but significant cultural impact on the overall institutions. 
I'd say the bigger structural issue happened with a shift from agency businesses to principal businesses. And by that, I mean, when you're an agent, both in the case of M&A, you're, it's not your money. You're representing somebody trying to sell them or trying to help them buy something. And similarly, if you're taking a company public or finding a debt from them, generally you are their agent and you take a spread on what you raise for them. That is a very different kind of business than a business where you are using your own capital. So the kinds of conflicts that come into play where in a world where you shift from, I am sponsoring this company in this industry and I always represent them when it's in this industry to a world where sometimes I do M&A deals mm -hmm. And when I'm selling a company, I have to be even handed at making it available to everybody in that industry to get the highest price. Well, that's a kind of sort of conflict, but it's something that can easily be managed. That's very different from when the banks themselves go into the business of doing LBOs with their own money. In that instance, you, for your own account, might be bidding against your longstanding client for some asset that's being sold by somebody else. And so in the late 90s, you're seeing these commercial banks getting into investment banking. Glass-Steagall is about to be uh, repealed. And in terms of conflicts uh, or just uh, other lines of business to sell to clients is the idea of financing, that you can get your loan and your M&A advice and your IPO underwriter all from Citigroup or big firm, whatever, J.P. Morgan. And so for the investment banker who always, up until that point, thought of themselves as a long-term relationship person who was trusted by the client because the client knew and felt that they had a stake in their long-term success, that both of you would succeed together. All of a sudden, that banker who was singularly focused on you having the best possible outcome is now being pressured to sell you everything that the bank has to offer. Now, the chances that Citigroup or Goldman or any of these banks who you are the banker for has the best product at the best price across all products is highly unlikely. And if you are truly a trusted advisor, you would say, well, you know, if you're going to be doing equity raising, we have a very good analyst and we have a good franchise. But if you want to do high yield debt, you know, the reality is this bank over there is a lot more aggressive and will probably give you good terms. If you say that to your client, I promise you that somebody from the high yield desk downstairs will come upstairs or actually probably wait till you go home and then sneak through the window and slit your throat. And so you write this book from your experience as the banker, and as the banker, it's not fun being the guy who has to open up the briefcase and sell a derivative, sell a high-yield product uh, when you're the M&A banker, and that's your specialty. But from the client point of view, was the financial supermarket a bad deal as well? So the fact that there are full-service investment banks is a good thing for society. Take the case of Sidney Weinberg and Ford. They were the long-time uh, advisors to Ford. He went on the board, and Goldman Sachs took the company public and helped them with their all of their needs. So there's nothing wrong with providing multiple products and services. What's wrong is where the financial pressures are such that the person whose job it is to give the best advice has pressure to sell the products of their institution above giving the best possible advice. And the factor that I think caused the biggest change goes to the point that you made earlier, which is before it was their own capital. All of these companies went public and it wasn't their capital anymore. It was the public's capital. The pressure to keep the stock price high on a short-term basis and the way you got paid was 
very short term, which is what are your revenues for this year? The pressures from the people on top was how much did you sell today? That is what changed. So there's nothing wrong with having multiple products. In fact, one of the great one of the great contributions of many investment banks is the fact that they can deal with multiple aspects of the problems faced by their clients. The issue comes from them pursuing goals that are consistent with their own objectives and not their clients' objectives. And so you write uh, in the book, uh, quote, as the boom era moved to an end in later 2000, among, among its casualties was the culture of excellence and client service that had once prevailed at the leading investment banking houses. Explain that. Uh, yeah, Senator. look, I, I, to me, th- this institution that I mentioned before called the Commitments Committee used to be a hugely important institution at all of these houses because it was the committee that you, if you wanted to take a company public, it had you had to present it as the as the uh, as the banker and explain why this was a company that was worthy of being associated with indefinitely into the future that is to sponsor them in the public markets you had a vested interest not just in the company but frankly in in the health and the credibility of the of the public markets because if if in public investors lost faith in the public markets, that was bad for you because you're in that business. So the question was, should we sponsor this company? What happened during the internet boom is people stopped asking that question and they started asking the question, can we sponsor it? I.e., is there a market for this thing today? Can we get it out? That's a very different question. And the reality is there was a race to the bottom because if you said, look, we shouldn't, but we can, so let's, you're going to make money. But if you say we shouldn't and we won't, well, then somebody else will. And if you have to choose between losing market share or losing your soul, people tended to go on the ledger <laughs> on the side of losing uh, losing your soul. Now, not everybody was as bad as everybody else. Frankly, I think Goldman was better than many. But I think I quote in the book a gentleman who was the head of the Commitments Committee during this era, who was interviewed a few years later, who admitted that he was ashamed of many of the decisions that were made during that boom. And that shift away from people who are just investors feeling confident that the biggest institutions in the world that are taking these companies public actually genuinely ask the question on their behalf, should we sponsor this? They no longer had that faith, nor should they have had that faith. Okay, so you write this book kind of 2005, 2006, 2007. It seems like the internet bust will likely be at that time at least be the seminal moment of your career at least uh, on the downside but then 2008 2009 happens and it's not even close there's nothing like the financial crisis yeah. what themes from the book and what you saw in the internet bust can explain uh, the financial crisis which is again a tsunami compared to just uh yeah well uh, i mean and put aside the economic impact and why it was a bigger economic impact than than the internet bust. From an institutional point of view, it was kind of second verse, same as the first, because after the bust of the internet, these firms could have stepped back and said, oh my gosh, we're ashamed of ourselves. Let's recreate, let's reestablish our culture and our values. That's not what happened. One thing that was sort of counterintuitive at the time, but when you think about it, it shouldn't be, is you'd think that when banks are doing really, really poorly, that the best people will rise to the top. Because in good times, you know, it, there's so much money to go around, you'd figure anybody can do well. But when times get tough, only the best people can do well. That's not how it works. How it works is when times are bad, nobody's going to make money. So people become 100% focused on the politics. 
and you notice that when times are bad, every firm suddenly has try heads of every group. That is, everybody is looking for some administrative position uh, so that, so that you have some role that doesn't actually give you responsibility for generating revenue. And it's not a coincidence that right after the internet bust, there was battles royal at the tops of every one of these firms over who was going to lead them. And along with who's going to lead them, which people are going to get saved and which people are going to get shot. And it has nothing to do with so the business. No, to be clear, there's no actual work to do with these. There's no deals going on. So the only thing to spend your day doing is Politics politicking. all day and all night. And so instead of spending their time fixing the culture, they spent their time you know, saving, their jobs. saving their jobs. And when the debt boom happens, because that's what led up to – Oh, eight. Right. So the market kind of snaps back pretty that's sharply. Right. Oh, three, oh, four. But Greenspan's there. That's uh, right. Anyone can get money for an LBO. That's right. So instead of there being a boom in the equity markets, what, what there is is a huge boom in the debt markets. So there's a separate commitments committee for debt products. Right. And there, again, you ask yourself a slightly different question as to not whether or not you want to sponsor the company. But you frequently you ask the, the the magic words at least uh, at that point I was at Morgan Stanley, the magic words for debt capital markets is is this money good, are the people you're lending to going to get paid back, that's the question, and typically that kind of question or can yes. we syndicate we can we syndicate this in time so well that's, someone's problem that's my point so whereas before, in the equity land they moved from should we to could we. In debt land, they moved from, is it money good, to is there somebody who will take this piece of paper? And as a result, and they faced exactly the same problem, which is, am I going to lose market share in this hot market where, I mean, it used to be that they'd look at, and they still looked at, well, how much interest coverage is there? Uh, Does this thing generate, you know, twice as much interest than... Uh, the debt obligations. But very frequently here, you saw people issuing debt on on securities where it couldn't pay the interest once and it was being issued on the hope that later they'd be able to go public to pay it off. So that there wasn't even a pretext of it being money good. The only question was were there people out there who were willing to buy that debt? And again, people sort of took this libertarian view of, well, if there's a market for it, who are we to say? And so one of the interesting things about being a corporate finance or M&A banker at Goldman or Morgan or whatever firm at the time is that the earnings your group is generating is only a portion of the profits at Goldman or Morgan. This whole idea of fixed income trading, other kinds of trading now have taken over the profitability of these firms. Look at Goldman, Lloyd Blankfein's not an M&A banker by training. That's Gary right. Cohn is not. Uh, and so where the money is actually being made at these banks has changed quite a bit. That's right. Well, and it shifted again. So it shifted quite dramatically, quite quickly from being overwhelmingly the agency businesses that we talked about where you're, you're the advisor to somebody and you get a piece yeah. to these principal businesses. And in fact, the old line investment banking had moved from being the vast majority to being about 10%. It was sort of the equivalent of what Macy's puts in the windows uh, in the holidays as opposed to what's actually going on back inside uh, inside of the store. And so a consequence of the Great Recession, the financial crisis, was that kind of the pure investment banks, many of them failed, Bear, Lehman, Merrill, Goldman and Morgan and now bank holding companies. And so that's a pretty radical shift that the kind of the pure investment bank uh, really doesn't exist uh, anymore post-crisis. Well, look, they, there are a number of things that have changed. Obviously, J.P. Morgan uh, and and what is now BAML are uh, much more significant uh, in the market. Morgan Stanley and Goldman are still there. But some of the regulatory changes that came have limited how much principal business they can do. But ironically, you have two very negative phenomena that that are 
continuing a downward spiral, particularly with respect to the quality of people at these firms. One is because they can't do principal business, they're not as profitable, not nearly as and profitable. leverage has come down quite a bit. That's right. Firm. The result is if you are somebody who is a trusted advisor and who can get business just by sitting in an office with a phone and calling people who trust you because they like your advice, chances are you're going to leave and go do that, either start your own firm or go to some existing boutique. Right. Where and so that's paid. an important phenomena. You have uh, now this kind of bifurcation, right? You've got the boutique firms uh, you're working with now, Evercore. Yeah. There's a bunch of much smaller ones. And if you're a good M&A banker, you can go there or just start your own firm and clients right. are happy to put you in the lead slot. They don't really care what what name is on your business card uh, because right. they trust you. And that's a, that's a pretty important shift from, from when you started 25 years ago. And I joined Evercore in 2003, which was just after the, uh, the crash. Things were starting Nothing. to come back, right? In 2003, the percentage of M&A deals that had on one side or the other a boutique firm, all a boutique means is you're, you're not providing the supermarket right, of products, yeah. right? So you, so Lazard would be the biggest independent. A less sexy way to call them is just independents or boutiques. Only about 5% of M&A had an independent on one side or other of the transaction. Today, that number is probably somewhere between... 35 and 50%. So that is a dramatic shift. So the now, there's a lot of double counting because on many deals there are multiple, multiple advisors, but it reflects a very fundamental shift uh, of, frankly, trust away from these incumbent institutions to the individuals rather than rather than the, the companies. They don't, you, it's not Goldman Sachs. It's whoever it was right. at Goldman Sachs who you went to. The second, in some ways, more serious problem, which infects all of uh, the industry, both boutiques and established ones, is the smartest kids aren't going to banking anymore, uh, or at least uh, not nearly as many. Uh, I went to Stanford Business School. I mean, historically, consulting and banking both attracted about 25-30% of the graduates at the top business schools, for better or for worse. And there are, there are good and bad things about that. Today at Stanford, maybe a handful of people at Stanford yeah. go into investment banking, literally a handful. At Columbia, where I teach now at the business school, which is much more of a finance-oriented business school right. because it's the only top 10 business school in New York City, it used to be 30%. Now it's 15%. Okay, yeah. So that's half. And that means that the quality of kids who are going into the pipeline at these big firms right. is going down. And the best of them, they have to split with the boutiques because the boutiques are viewed as sexier. And so there has been a lot written about uh, the boutique model and how the idea of an independent firm can provide its own kind of unique value to clients. But there are some criticisms which I think are interesting of the model. One is that many of these firms, yours, uh, the current one you work at now included, have grown very quickly and they tend to get a lot of uh, MDs who are refugees from large firms and they may be good bankers, but you know, culturally it is a, it may be kind of a cowboy culture where you are a mercenary and you're brought in to fill a specific hole and everyone's from somewhere else. You were one of the, the first partners at, at Evercore, but now it's, I don't know how many multiples bigger. Some firms are Cowboy cultures where they're given a quota to hit in three years and uh, they have to hit that. And so they tend to be incentivized to, to generate that revenue as quickly as possible. And then that culturally it is hard to find a, a common a common thread amongst partners when they're brought in so quickly to, to fill these holes. So as a category, independent firms are what they sound like. They're independent firms. So yeah. you definitely want to look very, very closely at who the people are. And I think the criteria that you just articulated, namely how fast they grew, is a very important one uh, in terms of their ability to do diligence on who they're adding and keeping the culture meaningful. And the reality is many people 
went to boutiques to escape uh, what was a culture that they thought was problematic at the at the old firms. Mm-hmm. What I would say is uh, two things. One, it's it's hard to find third party proof of whose culture is best. If you go to interview at an investment bank, everyone when you ask them what's your culture at bank fill in the blank, they all say, well, we have a no asshole policy here. And you can be forgiven if you interview at 10 banks and discover that they all have no asshole policies uh, for wondering where are all of the investment banking assholes, which uh, uh, seem to be uh, crawling the streets. So it's very hard to really figure that out. There are a few tells, however. One is turnover at the partner ranks. A second is how fast they grow. You may think that I'm just picking things that uh, Evercore is going to come out looking good. Uh, <laughs> we come out looking very good in terms of turnover. All of the original 12 partners that I was with when I came there are still there. And there's uh, very, very little turnover. And we did not grow nearly as fast as the others did. Right after 08, many people were just sort of hiring all these people who were falling out in the hopes of uh, of getting big fast. We never hired more than a handful and still only hire a handful of partners a year because, frankly, uh, there's a, a colleague of mine at uh, Columbia Business School, uh, Bruce Greenwald, uh, likes to say the thing about cats is that it's really easy to get your daughter a cute little cat, but it's hard to drown them later. It's similar with uh, hiring partners. Yeah. Uh, they really are partners. And if you have a, a firm that really is a partnership culture, if you have one that isn't the right kind of partner, it, it gets tricky to drown them later. And so do you tell your students at Columbia who are uh, not from investment banking, but have gone to Columbia perhaps to, to make that transition? Uh, and you mentioned the stats earlier about how tech is taken primacy in terms of post uh, MBA careers uh, and perhaps other corporate roles or venture capital. Is banking still a, a good place to to launch a career? It's sort of an odd uh, place to start the questioning. To me, there's a more fundamental question about what environments individual peoples are, are likely to thrive in. And that really is quite personal. I think it has been the case for many years that people who go to top business schools are highly ambitious, and they focus far too much on what job immediately on departure is that thing that will indicate to the world that I have been successful in this next phase of my life. There was an era where consulting and banking was that thing. Consulting and banking are service professions. Service professions are sales jobs. There's nothing wrong with sales jobs. Being a trusted advisor is being an agent. You're in fundamentally a sales job. But if you are not a person who is naturally empathetic, who enjoys social interaction and getting feedback like that, you will be miserable. Similarly, uh, and there's no way (laughs) that the 60% who went into banking and consulting back then should have all been going to banking and consulting. They were doing it because they wanted to be able to check the box and tell their mom that they had been successful because they got a Goldman or McKinsey job. That said, as compared to the 50% who now go to firms that have less than 50 people because it's now cool to be an entrepreneur, Mm -hmm. I think those people are as probably the percentage who are doing that who shouldn't are as high as the percentage who went to banking and consulting that shouldn't. Banking is right for certain people. It's not right for most people. Being at a small startup company is right for some people. It's not right for all people. On the consulting and banking line, to your point, those are sales jobs. But those, uh, as you move up and you're at the very senior levels, I think a lot of people, and I'm one of those uh, who went into those jobs, did it for the training and the exposure and the resume building, which are compelling enough reasons, I, I think, to at least uh, spend a few years doing it. So I would say on that score, that is a good reason why in some ways it's less bad than going into a firm that's got 20 people and doesn't know what it's doing. Right. That's going to fail within the next 18 months because you're going to leave there without very many skills. Yeah. That said, this five-step plan to take over the world that many students have 
where they say, I really want to do X. And the way I'm going to get to X is I'm going to do A and then I'm going to do F and then I'm going to pivot to J and then I'm going to do Y and then I'm going to do X. You know, I, I think they overthink it. I think actually focusing on what you think you might enjoy and then killing it. And during the course of that, either realizing it's not what you want or learning it is what you want and getting better at it, I generally think that's probably a better path than the five-step plan for world domination that many of these folks take. Yeah, the uh, A to X to J was how I ended up at the Financial Times, actually. So that makes sense. You write, investment banking is about the best job in the world. CEOs are probably the most important decision makers in society. And as a banker, you are directly influencing decision makers on matters of significance. It is the best job in the world if, like me, and it was a surprise to me that it was as good a job for this purpose, because frankly, I took it because I had nothing else going on and London was cool and media seemed cool and I, I needed a job. But I had actually rejected it previously, having spent a summer doing it. So remember, I went into lobbying because I thought that would be the right job if you're interested in having access to and an ability to influ influence important decision makers. And what I realized was that banking gave you actual access to the CEOs of companies to talk to them about the most strategically critical decisions that they face that will have huge impact on both their employees and the communities that they operate in, in a way that you don't get access to. You don't get that kind of access as a, certainly not as a lobbyist or as a lawyer. And you get, frankly, more access than you probably should, given your level of, of knowledge and development. But it's a pretty exciting and heady thing. And if you actually get good at it, and are in a position to give them good advice, it's a pretty great job. And so do you think that access and influence is deserved? Do you think the advice that you gave as a banker or other bankers give is informed enough to actually positively impact the direction uh, of a company? Uh, and then I guess the back half of that question is a lot of bankers do end up being politically influential or in a policy position, particularly you know when Republicans are in charge. Do you think that the actual value, uh, irrespective of the actual access they're getting, is is socially socially valuable. Okay, there there are a few pieces there. So let me quote my favorite line from Spider Man the movie. The first one pre all the reboots, it was uh, Cliff Robertson who looked uh, at uh, Peter Parker and said, "With great power comes great responsibility." So. Yes, having that kind of access to CEOs to give them advice has the uh, potential to have great good and great bad. I think that I've never given advice that I didn't believe. I think most bankers try to do the right thing. I think that the increasing institutional pressures of short termism sometimes allows bankers who even who want to think that they're doing the right thing to shade the truth of it but i suppose on the other hand the fact that ceos now don't trust bankers very much and are highly sensitized to their conflicting objectives on the one hand is good in that they're not going to just take advice without wondering whether or not uh, the banker is pursuing his own objectives. But it's bad in the sense that, you know, <laughs> CEOs have people blowing smoke up their butt all day long. Having somebody who doesn't have a dog in the fight, who's smart, who's involved in the industry, who knows what's happening in the ecosystem, just tell them what they think is a hugely valuable skill and uh, a hugely valuable service to the public. So when CEOs kind of lose the ability to trust their bankers, it actually is bad for society, is as counterintuitive as that may seem. And so what are clients really looking for from their banker? You described that strategic counsel objective, the banker's experience in the industry, trafficking and in information and ideas. How much of it is that versus just 
wanting the transaction executed, the the IPO completed, the the debt pricing. Look, there is there's a range of clients like there are ranges of uh, of bankers. In fact, you know, I always find it funny when when people complain that. You know, bankers are, have become incredibly mercenary and transactional. They frequently blame clients because in the old days, you know, clients were loyal and now they'll just go with whoever happens to give them the best, uh, the best pricing or the best, uh, the best idea. But there are, I remember when this book came out, there was, I was on a panel with Michael Wolf and Carl Icahn and Andrew Ross Sorkin. It was, it was, I, I don't know how it got put together. And, Somebody asked Carl Icahn, you know, well, who had just hired Lazard to do this big book about why Time Warner should just do whatever Carl wanted them to do. Carl said, in answer to the question, well, wh- why, did, why do you need Lazard? He says, uh, you know, uh, I want, the, what do you call that, uh, an, uh, an imprimatur. Yeah, I want that imprimatur. And uh, honestly, f- for me, when you meet a potential client, when you get a sense that they really don't care what you have to say, that they're looking for an imprimatur, they're looking for a... Rubber stamp. Yes. Yeah. You know, life's too short for me personally. And so you brought up uh, Time Warner, and that's a nice segue to uh, your uh, area of specialty, uh, which, of course, is uh, media investment banking. So while you're here, we should talk to you uh, about uh, the stories of the day. So you wrote The Curse of the Mogul, which was your second book, and that is about how... Media moguls get outsized attention. They're thought leaders and their ideas on whatever's going on in the world is, are disproportionately paid attention to. But in fact, they're terrible stewards of capital. Uh, the returns are, are very poor. Uh, they resort to cliches and not really any kind of rigorous thinking. And as such, they've, they've actually destroyed uh, a lot of value. Uh, you wrote that book probably seven or eight or nine years ago now. And a lot's happened uh, in media since then. But is the is the era of the the mogul over, or did you did you presage the end of the era of the mogul? You know, I, I, what I would say is the lessons of the book are still valid. That is the importance of focusing on what competitive advantage is and what sources of your competitive advantage are, and to not trivialize the importance of. Uh, efficient operations in favor of sexy things that uh, may seem more interesting to you at the time. All of the basic business strategy lessons are still valid. The question of whether uh, moguls uh, have continued to uh, destroy value, I think, is a much more uh, complicated uh, question. You know, when my banking book came out, it was much more controversial than I anticipated or that most folks anticipated. But that, I was just talking about bankers. I I was actually quite kind to clients in the book. It was really a a book about why clients deserve better than what bankers had become. So I I didn't think that would be controversial, although it was. But then I wrote a book called Curse of the Mogul, where I essentially was saying a bunch of my clients have been destroying value for a, a long time, or at least that's how it was interpreted. And ironically, I got no pushback. Because everybody said, yeah, that's right. I totally agree with it. And I can't believe that other guy is doing that mogul stuff because we're on your side. And I got a lot of quiet calls from CFOs uh, saying, this is fantastic because I can use this in my internal fights to get people to behave more in a more shareholder-friendly right, so the way. the CFO is the... The sanity check on the That's right. CEO's uh, insane ambition. That's right. But, you know, you, you talk about the uh, Time Warner AT&T deal, and I would argue that the CEO of Time Warner's willingness to sell the company at a very high price is a, is a shareholder of friendly. And indeed, if you just look at what Time Warner did over time, which is... What, to, what Carl Icahn told them to do. Which, sort of. Yes. Whether they did it because Carl Icahn told them to do it or not is a separate is a separate question. But yeah, they, they focused and they created a lot of value and they ultimately sold it at a huge price by any yeah. objective standard. They just have to get that deal done. And the ultimate mogul is throwing in the towel too, at least partially it seems. And I'm referring to, to Rupert Murdoch. To Rupert of Murdoch. Well, but, but Rupert, within the spectrum of 
of moguls talked about in the book, both in terms of the actual returns over time. Rupert has always been uh, the most complex and in some ways the most successful. Uh, he's certainly the only one of that era who simultaneously pursued smart strategic initiatives, sometimes quite risky, and never disrespected or devalued the importance of running the individual businesses well. Now, over time, Rupert has done more and more things that, shall we say, have been less obviously designed to create value. Buying Dow Jones uh, was probably good for journalism because the amount of capital that has been put into that to strengthen that as compared to what would have happened if it had been left on the trajectory it was on. And do you have any more confidence in Silicon Valley tech overlord as mogul, now media media baron? Or do you think there's a coherent theme again, uh, amongst uh, our new tech overlords uh, as they make their foray into, into media? Look, these are all still relatively young people in a very relatively young industry with a lot of hubris. And I would say that the the events of, of the recent couple of years is going to suggest that they're, they're on a very fast uh, learning curve. I think the ideology of that world uh, that has become increasingly in focus in the context of what happened with the election, the recent book Brotopia, a number of the very interesting histories of the development of Silicon Valley, mm -hmm. I think is requiring these companies and these people to grow up and develop more uh, sophisticated concepts of their culture and their companies. And then finally, your specific uh, focus in, in media has been publishing and we're obviously a newspaper, and one of the things that's interesting is there does seem to be some kind of renaissance, at least amongst the, the best news uh, brands. You've seen New York Times, a billion dollars in subscription revenue. What are your views on the future of print journalism, print media, as it uh, tries to transform itself in, into a new world? It's been hard, and it's going to continue to be hard. Information businesses are good businesses when they are subscription businesses that have high renewal rates. Publishing, I stopped calling myself a publishing person uh, probably 15 years ago because I want to be able to pay my daughter's tuition. So we, I became information industry in my banking capacity. I still occasionally will sell a newspaper. I sold the Boston Globe for about 5% of what the New York Times bought it for. The New York Times has done a very good job, uh, but make no mistake about it, it is a fraction of the size that it was in its heyday. Right. Uh, there are business models that will work in traditional news, but they are going to be much smaller businesses than they used to be. Is the ultimate solution then a rich owner? I mean, you've seen that at the Washington Post, saw it at the LA Times. Is philanthropy really the ultimate business model for uh, I don't think I don't think philanthropy is a sustainable business model. The Washington Post I think will be a profitable business. You don't have to be very profitable to be sustainable. You just have to be profitable. And a minority of these businesses are profitable. I think the Post if it is not profitable yet, I think will be profitable. It will not have a 20 or 30% margin and in the old days newspapers particularly local newspapers, could have 40% margins, even when they weren't run that well. Classified advertising. Yeah, because of classified, exactly. But the good news is that the Internet has lowered the barriers to entry so that there are more people who can create interesting content than before. The bad news is these businesses are going to be much more competitive, and the ones that succeed will not be wildly profitable. Very good. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you.
And that's the end of this week's show. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think. You can email us at alphachat at ft.com. Send us a voice memo, and we might even play it on a future episode. Please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really helps people find out about us, and we do love the feedback on how we can improve the show from week to week. Thank you to Sajid and to Jonathan for this week's conversation, and thanks to you, our listeners. We'll see you here next week for another episode of Alpha Chat. And by the way, Sajid is one of the writers of the FT's Due Diligence newsletter. It's a daily must-read Tuesday through Friday on the ins and outs of M&A happening around the world. You can head over to ft.com forward slash NBE to sign up. That stands for News by Email, ft.com forward slash NBE, and click on Due Diligence. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.